You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Each Friday, we bring you the latest news and analysis from the world of labour. First, the news. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 45 of Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. Uh, This week in labour news, or rather this morning in labour news, uh, this morning being Wednesday morning, We had some good news for those people who work long hours and whose bosses claim that they're exempt from overtime. Uh, President Obama is moving to revise the Labor Department's regulations to require overtime pay for several million more workers. Those who may be getting more overtime include fast food managers, loan officers, computer technicians, others who've been classified by their employers as executive or professional employees to avoid paying them more. Conservatives predictably whined about this move, similar to one taken by George W. Bush in 2004, but in the opposite direction, but it's actually long overdue. Many salaried workers are pushed to put in extra hours because those hours are essentially free um, if you make a weekly rather than hourly wage. Um, If they're required to be paid overtime, such practices might be cut back, giving those workers a little bit more free time for essentially the same wage. Or they might make some overtime. Also, as economist Jared Bernstein noted in the New York Times, businesses might be incentivized to hire more people to spread that work around, which would be great for the un- or underemployed. Current rules dictate that employers must pay overtime if earned to salaried workers who make less than $455 a week, which was the number that Bush raised it to back in 2004, so 10 years ago. Bernstein and Ross Eisenbray wrote a paper that encouraged raising that level to $984 a week. New York and California already have higher thresholds, so we will see, I guess there's no exact number that the Labor Department has come up with yet. We'll see what it ends up with, but it's an encouraging move, particularly in the direction of encouraging businesses to spread the hiring out rather than working a few people for incredibly long hours. Even better, of course, would be a push for a shorter work week for the same pay, but now I'm dreaming. Maybe. And moving from Washington to U.S. military bases abroad, Al Jazeera America has come out out with a scathing new report on deep ties between the U.S. military and severe labor violations of contracted workers at overseas bases. You may have heard about uh, military private contractors being deployed in the battlefield, um, you know, such as the company formerly known as Blackwater. And now Al Jazeera has actually peeled back the curtain on a rather unseemly workforce that has been providing not military services, but logistical help on U.S. military bases. That is, these are the people who do laundry, who cook and clean and serve food and perform other tasks that keep these bases running. These are neither locals of the country in which the U.S. military is stationed, nor do they come from the U.S. These are so-called third country nationals. And they've basically been recruited often through shady networks, often through uh, exorbitant predatory fees, often through outright fraud um, into these U.S. military bases through a network of contractors, subcontractors, etc. Um, currently, the Fluor and Dynecor companies are the main contractors involved in this. And this is basically um, following the same model that is seen in labor trafficking around the world in the private 
private sector, which is you have people coming uh, largely from uh, South Asian countries or a poor countries in the global south and moving to places like uh, the Gulf countries. We talked a little bit on this podcast before about the South Asian workers being used to do uh, World Cup infrastructure work in, in Qatar. And now on U.S. military bases, you have people who are being paid poverty wages, who are being kept in substandard conditions, and often who are virtually held captive in a system of debt peonage. And the U.S. military has basically turned a blind eye to all of this. And uh, Al Jazeera says that they've found, uh, they've stumbled across basically legions of workers who have paid incredible amounts of money for the privilege of working for the U.S. military. And, privilege. Yeah. According to one estimate, this uh, this globalized labor system has led to about $15 billion of waste of taxpayer money. So yes, we can rail all we want about how uh, human trafficking is a terrible thing, but when taxpayers are actually subsidizing human trafficking that's going on under the U.S. military's watch, um, that is a gigantic stain on not only our human rights record, but on our labor rights record as well. So think about it. But it's okay. Nobody cares about human trafficking as long as we're not talking about sex, right? Right. <laughs> Listen to last week's episode with Melissa Gira Grant for more on that. So back to not trafficked workers, but workers who could stop traffic if they wanted to, I guess. That was a really cheesy segue, guys. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> a few weeks ago in Maspeth, Queens, uh, 250 UPS workers, members of Teamster Local 804, walked off the job to support a colleague who'd been fired without a hearing. That wildcat strike led to all 250 of them getting notices of termination on March 6th. After what the union says is a long pattern of intimidation and discipline of union activists, the workers have had enough, and now they're demanding to be reinstated and gaining support. Petitions are being circulated from groups like the Working Families Party. Even former Labor Secretary Robert Reich has spoken in favor of the workers. Support is coming in from UPS facilities across the nation as well. Um, UPS has one of, if not the largest single union contract in the country, I believe. And so... Again, in instances like this, they may seem like sort of a small local labor story, but in reality, the conditions that the workers are facing in at one facility in Queens are probably very similar to the ones that they're facing in facilities all over the place, or perhaps even worse, considering some of those facilities are in places that have very few other unions around. New York, we know, has a pretty solid union culture. The union says the walkout and protest at Massbeth is an expression of the frustration that UPS employees everywhere feel at the breakdown of labor management relations at the company. Firing the drivers at Massbeth compounds the problem instead of addressing it. So they're calling for UPS to sit down with the workers, um, rescind the terminations, and work to restore labor management relations that work for everyone. The willingness of workers like these to walk off the job, to take direct action in the face of what they saw as an attack on their rights is something, well, we'll be talking about very shortly on this podcast today, but something that maybe, maybe, we're just maybe hoping is on the rise again a little bit in this country after many years of strikes being way, way down. So we shall see. Right. And it should also be noted that UPS is one of the very large companies that has had trouble with getting proper classification for their workers, which ties back into that overtime discussion you're having in terms of just mislabeling workers in order to cut their benefits and cut their labor protections. So uh, coming full circle. 
and bouncing back to uh, overseas, um, there has been another strike involving workers in China on the other side of the planet, but facing similar struggles. Workers at an IBM factory in Shenzhen uh, went on strike. It was about a thousand workers went on a wildcat strike last week following an announcement that the factory was going to transfer ownership to the Chinese PC maker Lenovo Group. So we talked a little bit about IBM and all the troubles it's been having um, on the domestic front in this country. And now it seems like they are shifting uh, some of those labor conflicts to the place that they thought that they could safely exploit workers with abandon. It turns out that Chinese workers are a lot more militant than perhaps many of these multinational corporations expected. So uh, they went on a wildcat strike, and it comes on the heels of a bunch of strikes. There have been, according to one calculation, well over a thousand strikes uh, since 2011, uh, which I've written about a little bit in these times, and it really marks a sort of rising militancy among uh, Chinese workers, Chinese manufacturing workers, particularly those that are tied into the global manufacturing system, like at IBM. So um, the workers were actually just basically incensed about the transfer of ownership. And uh, rather than coming out with specific demands, they were mainly voicing frustration at this uh, disruption in their work, and they feared layoffs, and they basically wanted uh, assurances that they would get justly compensated for any job losses or any structural changes that might happen due to this transfer of ownership. But more broadly, it sort of marks a major shift in China's working masses in recent years. Basically, what we see now is China has developed to a point where you actually have a labor shortage in some sectors, and you actually have workers, by default, sort of gaining power because they realize that they are in demand, and they can leverage that. And even though the only real union in China is the gigantic state-run, basically government-supported union apparatus that does nothing as often in cahoots with management, what these workers are doing with these wildcat strikes is actually taking their own initiative, organizing among themselves, and it should be noted that one of the main lubricants for this kind of organizing is workers becoming more technologically savvy. So you have a lot of 20-something workers who are online, they're using mobile technology, they're texting like mad, and they're actually, for the first time, using the fruits of their own labor. Um, So they're not only seizing the means of production, but they're actually seizing the fruits of their own labor in their own militant struggles. So good on them. I love that. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. For today's main discussion, we are joined by Micah Utrecht, who is the author of the new book, Strike for America, Chicago Teachers Against Austerity. Um, We have talked, of course, quite a bit about the Chicago Teachers Union on this podcast, dating back to our very first episode. And Micah's book is a sort of deep look at the strike, what led up to the strike, the aftermath of the strike, and why it all matters. So welcome, Micah. So, Micah, before we start, I hear that you had a, a little run-in with our soon-to-be-negotiating a contract with the teachers' union himself, Mayor Bill de Blasio, last night. I did, yeah, at a bar in uh, Park Slope. And uh, what what came of that? Well, uh, we were sitting outside because it was a warm night, and all of a sudden there were all these guys, you know, speaking into their lapels and like, <laughs> a black Suburban that pulled up. And I didn't really put two and two together, but the people I was with were like, oh, yeah, that must be de Blasio. So we thought that they were going to their home, which was right around the corner. Uh, but then he and his wife, Sherlane, actually got out of the car and started walking into the bar. Uh, and 
I had a copy of the book with me, and I was joking with my friends, wouldn't it be funny if I uh, you know, gave a copy of the book to Bill de Blasio? And they said, oh, you have to give a book to Bill de Blasio. So I walked over to him. He didn't say much. It was actually my personal copy that had all my like notes, including like self-criticism of things I didn't do right in the book. <laughs> so he's got that copy now. And the conversation mostly focused on him feeling bad that I was giving him that copy. But uh, I, I told him it was okay. And uh, he, he answered very uh, like a good politician, which he didn't... Uh, didn't didn't say anything that was uh, very interesting besides thank you. <laughs> but maybe he'll show up to the book launch tonight. Who knows? Who knows? I mean, maybe he'll take some lessons from it. If he, he, takes, ha- he now is a one-of-a-kind, hand-annotated It's true. It's true. It's the only one that's like that. So if he takes a very hard tack to the left in education policy in the next coming months, you'll know why. I'll, I'll take full credit for that. <laughs> okay. So... Micah, you spend much of your book discussing the political dynamics between the union leadership and the rank and file of the Chicago Teachers Union. And you note that the CTU has a tradition of younger rank and file activists over time, you know, with each new generation sort of battling calcified conservative leadership, pushing them to both represent the best interests of teachers and the communities in which they teach. Um, And then what usually happens is, um, you know, they then become rather conservative and crusty themselves as the new regime and uh, need to be overthrown (laughs) within a few years as well. So um, given this pattern of history repeating itself, uh, do you think CORE's come up with an organizing system or a governance structure that is truly sustainable in the sense that it will endure and that it is more durable and more able to withstand some of those sort of factional fights or some of that problem with the calcified leadership and you know what is their special sauce if they have one yeah so it's important first to explain that core is this caucus that is now in the leadership of the chicago teachers union and uh is the result of basically over a decade of uh struggle of rank and file teachers to create this kind of caucus that could um, be a you know explicitly left wing caucus could be led by its rank and file members, um, and it, there were several failed reform attempts within the union in the uh, like, such as the one that happened in the early two thousands um, that led to core finally winning uh, leadership of the union in two thousand ten. And one of the things I talk in the book is what makes core different from these other reform attempts that have happened uh, throughout the years in the CTU. There is a uh, sort of interesting uh, independence of the caucus from the official union leadership, despite the fact that the union leadership are CORE's candidates, um, are the people who they work to get elected into office, uh, but there's a recognition that there there needs to be this level of independence between the two bodies in order for the caucus to be able to push the union leadership when the union leadership um, inevitably succumbs to, uh, or, or or could be succumbing to, um, the kind of bureaucratic pressures that all union leadership face. Right, unions are huge bureaucracies, and there's all kinds of pressures that union leadership face um, in order to go back down the path of uh, of sort of conservative bureaucratic style unionism. Um, in the case of reformers, much like the people that they had just replaced. So, in the case of Core, I tell a story in the book, for example, about. Uh, a moment not long after CORE was elected to the main offices of the union, where uh, the official leadership sort of gets, uh, uh, in the way they tell it, get bamboozled into uh, signing on to a, a proposal, an education reform proposal, pushed by um, you know, this group, Stand for Children, which is uh, sort of free market reform 
a free market education reform group. And, you know, the, the union leadership has uh, been inexperienced, just a few months out of the classroom at this point, and they come back to their membership having signed on to this bill that would basically make it impossible for uh, the union to ever go on strike, among many other things. Uh, and it's the caucus, the rank-and-file members, who lead this charge within the union, first within the caucus and then within the union itself, that say, that's you know this bill is heinous. This bill totally defangs us as a union. It's unacceptable that you, we've signed on to this, and you need to go back and renegotiate parts of it. And so there's this uh, interesting moment within the union where uh, it could have been a kind of break, make or break moment where um, the union leadership wants to double down on decisions it's made, even though if there are bad decisions because they're the leaders, right? They're the deciders. Uh, and the caucus doesn't want to not back up the people that they just got into office because the people, the old guard is still waiting in the wings, right, the, to, to call out uh, the, the new inexperienced radicals for their um, failures uh, in governing in the first couple months. Um, but they, the, the caucus and the union leadership find a way, a sort of middle ground there where um, the leadership is principled enough to realize that they've done something wrong and they're, they're principled enough to actually listen to the rank-and-file leadership. Uh, and the rank-and-file members have a level of independence and are willing to call out their, their leadership when they see them doing something wrong, even though it's their people in office. So uh, this is one, of the, one example of uh, the kind of structure that uh, the CTU and the Corps have created in order to make sure they don't go down that same kind of bureaucratic and conservative path that uh, they've gone down, that past union reformers have gone down. Whether or not they'll ever succumb to that, of course, is anyone's guess, but um, they are at least cognizant of that possibility and have created structures to try to prevent that from happening. So in the book you dig into, your sort of first section is about the dynamics of core as a caucus. Before they won leadership, you then you know follow up with what the dynamics of core within the union as a caucus still as they are in leadership. Um, a lot of the people who made up core from the beginning came from different radical traditions already. Some of them were socialists from various socialist traditions. Some of those came from other activist backgrounds. Some of them didn't probably come from any. Um, but can you talk about the importance of that makeup, um, the way they brought a sort of systemic al- analysis of not just education, but power and politics to the table and how that shaped how core and then the union operated in power. There were a number of different people within the union who had had a varying degree of activist experience. Some, as you said, were radicals who were member of members of radical groups, socialist groups, uh, some who were kind of independent activists, some people who had been involved in past reform efforts, and uh, some people who had never really been involved in the union at all. And the caucus members had seen uh, the failure in 2001 of a liberal reform caucus, uh, it was called PACT, uh, that campaigned on you know, saying that uh, the union leadership uh, was calcified, gone conservative, they were corrupt, all of these things, um, but her, the pitch was, we are less corrupt, we are more competent, and we will do a better job for you. Um, and she, her, her in, in part because that was her orientation and she didn't believe uh, in uh, really changing the way the union leadership interacted with its rank-and-file members and really making the rank-and-file themselves the ones who were carrying out the union's agenda, that caucus was sunk after one term in office and the old guard, the, the United Progressive Caucus, the UPC, um, returned to power. So folks within CORE, some of them had a radical political 
analysis um, that was you know, emphasized the importance of uh, rank-and-file-led unionism, but there were also people who had just seen firsthand that a kind of simple liberal reform caucus uh, would not be enough to change what was going on within the teachers' union, to keep reformers in power, to be able to fight back against all the attacks that these teachers were facing. So looking back to the days that the strike was going on, you describe how groundbreaking it was and that it represented a grassroots model of organizing that could be both ideologically radical as well as practically effective in terms of getting real results in the community. Um, And it actually had a broad base of community support. So um, if this is the case, uh, why haven't we... Well, first of all, have we seen any such uprising that has followed this model since that 2012 strike? And if not, why do you think that is? Um, is there some sort of catalytic event that's been missing? Um, is Has there just not been the right combination of social circumstances? Or maybe this model isn't so easily replicated in other cities or other job sectors? Well, it's important to remember that the strike was only a year and a half ago, so... Uh, yeah, and Core took. No, we need results now. Yeah, right right Core, now, Core took a, a decade to uh, you know gain power within the uh, within the union. So, uh, as I say in the book, there's really no shortcuts to the kind of there's no shortcuts to the to events like the 2012 strike. Right, there was sometimes literally a decade in the making. Um, you know, one of the important things about the strike was how uh, it. You know, uh, it, we're currently in a moment where public sector workers in general and teachers in particular are demonized and the response of much of the labor movement that represents those kind of workers has been to shirk away from any kind of action like strikes and strikes are only seen as being more polarizing they'll put the community even more against the those kind of unions than they already are what about Uh, the children yeah exactly as well as the children one of the things that's important about the 2012 strike is that it shows how an action this kind of militant industrial action um, can actually be used in a way to push, you know, in the case of teachers' unions, educational equality. Uh, it doesn't actually alienate community members. It actually brings more community members to their side. Um, it, it shows, for example, um, you know, Sarah, you've written a lot about uh, emotional labor uh, in the pro- profession of teaching and other caring professions. And uh, it showed that a strike could actually, rather than show some kind of callous disregard for children, can actually be an action that shows how much these teachers care about their children. You know, in, in militant industrial action being used for the betterment of children. Um, so in the wake of the strike, there's been uh, several districts around the country that have either gone on strike or have threatened to go on strike. I mean, most recently we had um, Portland, Oregon, and St. Paul, Minnesota that came very close to being on strike. Um, we've also had uh, seat, uh, we've also had core style caucuses in places like Newark, New Jersey, that um, you know t- took a bunch of seats on its union's executive board and came within nine votes of winning their presidency. New York City, of course, has the movement of rank and file educators. So there's sort of both similar uh, caucuses to core that are sort of just getting their footing in a lot of places, but there's also so there's more of a willingness on the part of teachers' unions uh, to create uh, caucuses like CORE, but also a willingness to use tactics like the strike uh, or to threaten to, uh, the use of the strike in their day-to-day work. 
Yeah, you mentioned the teachers in St. Paul and Portland um, who both went to the verge of striking, and they did have many similar demands, many similar issues, um, and many similar strategies to CTU. And in the, both of those cases, many of those demands actually went into their contracts without them having to go on strike. Um, yet they got almost no attention from not even the mainstream press, a lot of the supposedly left press. Um, Sarah being one notable example. Well, I'm obsessed with teacher strikes. Um, <laughs> but in any case, um, so do you think it's possible that there's a way that we fetishize the strike too much? Or conversely, is it do those teachers not have those wins happening without CTU having shown the willingness, not just the willingness of teachers to go on strike, but the ability of teachers to win a strike? I think there certainly is a kind of fetishization of actions like strikes on behalf of the left. I mean, it makes me think of people who show up at rallies with signs that just say general strike no matter what the case is, right? Like, no matter what the problem is, the answer is to strike. Um, so we, we don't want to go too far down that road. But on the other hand, strikes are incredibly important events because they have this potential to really catalyze entire communities, entire cities. In the case of the CTU strike, much of the country was paying attention uh, to Chicago. And it was because they had taken this action of going on strike. Um, so I don't think that there is a kind of overemphasis on the importance of the strike, but there is an, uh, a lack of a willingness to realize the years and years of work that went into making the strike a successful one. It wasn't just that they decided to go on strike, it was that their strike came after CORE had organized for years alongside community members in neighborhoods of color who were fighting uh, school closings. Um, that it came as a res- after uh, you know the rank-and-file members had taken on all kinds of new responsibilities and there was a, a huge new level of democracy that was introduced into the union itself. Um, so there are all these things in, ahead of time that if they hadn't happened, if there wasn't that level of democracy, if there wasn't that level of engagement with communities, if Karen Lewis and the you know the leadership had just declared that they were going to go on strike, uh, then we wouldn't see the kind of backing of the community um, that we saw during the during the strike, um, and there wouldn't have been the kind of teacher enthusiasm about the strike. It would just be sort of. Uh, people uh, walking the picket lines because Karen Lewis said so, right? Um, so I think that it, it is right to emphasize how important the the strike itself was, but uh, we'd be doing a huge disservice if we thought that that just sort of happened in isolation a- apart from the decade of organizing that preceded it. Right. And in terms of the focus on the strike, I think it's important to remember that, you know, this happened in the wake of these egregious policies that had been passed specifically aimed at limiting teachers' right to strike and sort of eviscerating that power. So, I mean, the, the you know, the the administration kind of, uh, you know, did their work for them by focusing everyone's energy on Right, which strike. folks emphasize a lot in Chicago that there was a kind of perfect villain. I mean, it was a perfect storm in a lot of ways. There's, you know, years of these kind of attacks happening in Chicago specifically. There's a national climate that's, against teachers, which I think a lot of teachers find baffling, like still, despite the fact that it's been going on for years, like people who decide to make all these sacrifices and go into teaching don't understand why they're being attacked on a sort of daily basis in national media. So that's happening nationally. And then there's a mayor who seems to 
really enjoy personally, like on a personal <laughs> emotional level, enjoy antagonizing teachers. Um, and so that that drove people out into the streets too. I mean, it was it was a it was a real a perfect storm that, that created the conditions for the Chicago Teachers Union strike. And he likes Nickelback. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Cut that out. Um, one of the historical analogies you draw at various points in the book is between the uh, core leadership of the CTU and um, the rank and file within the Teamsters, um, and how that was sort of an iconic uh, movement of you know rank and file within a very established union that had managed to really shake things up. Um, on the other hand, one of the things that struck me in your reporting is that um, you also talk about how the CTU is you know, under core was sort of uniquely reflective of the interests and also even just the demographics of the community. And in a way, um, you know, they were, these were public sector workers engaged in highly gendered work, many of them women of color, um, teaching, you know, children in communities of color. um, And in a way, they were, they had much more contact with the community that they were, um, that they were serving. Um, so can you talk about how those types of relationships um, might factor into this whole idea of a rank-and-file leadership sort of bubbling up from the grassroots within a union? So the story of CORE is that after the failure of the reform leadership in the early 2000s, rank-and-file teachers, um, rather than trying to f- immediately form a new caucus and to challenge the union leadership for power again, decided to start organizing uh, alongside community organizations and neighborhoods of color that were already organizing, that were fighting um, Renaissance 2010, uh, the uh, Arne Duncan's plan for education reform in Chicago that was started in 2004. Um, They were attending school closure hearings and talking to parents and really creating these very real relationships with these community groups um, and were genuinely interested in what those parents and what those communities wanted, um, not just sort of giving the veneer of the of these teachers having community support. They, they were actually working together and, and sort of acting as equals together. Um, and according to people from CORE, it is those community members who encourage them to run for the leadership of the union. Uh, they decide to run a slate uh, for leadership because people at the grassroots level are saying, well, we've accomplished a lot. You know, they had uh, successfully gotten a number of schools off of the school closure list for several years in a row, for example. Um, we've accomplished a lot, but imagine how much we could do if we had the full uh, resources of the union at our disposal. So in, from the very beginning, the decision to even run for office within the union, it, it comes at the, uh, at the urging of uh, community members themselves. And... Since they won the office, uh, though, of course, there's been a lot of sort of back and forth and you know a lot of tough conversations, and, and not everybody always gets what they want. I think the general consensus is that uh, the union has been successful in treating community members as equals, uh, equal partners, um, and really making the demands of those communities central to what they're uh, what they're all about. It's particularly easy to have that kind of um, equal partnership with uh, community members in a profession like teaching where it's perhaps the easiest to line up uh, community members needs and 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 teachers desires Um, you know maybe it's not so simple to do for a union like the teamsters although even the 
when Teamsters went on strike in 1997 at UPS, their, their strike became about things that were uh, affecting the entire working class, about um, part-time hours and things like that. So there are certainly possibilities there. But, but clearly, um, a profession like teaching, it's, it's the easiest to do. But I, I think that the example of the CT, rather than showing an exact blueprint for um, how every unionist should create some, a rank-and-file caucus and go on strike and all those things, I, I think that it... Uh, their example gives some, uh, a, not a blueprint, but a kind of general direction for other unionists to think about um, how they can make their work in the union about the entire working class, not just about their narrow interests of their of their members. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting in that also um, we see the idea of, of sort of community organizing itself. Um, of organizing off of the shop floor ends up being gendered, right? So that, like, it's not just that teachers are uniquely connected to the community in a lot of ways, which they are. Um, We've seen the same sort of success with the nurses' union here in New York. Um, But also that this idea that you sort of organize people where they live as well as where they work is in itself sort of a gendered idea. In any case... um, things that I think about a lot. You may hear them talked about on this podcast about once a week. Um, Anyway, you write about how Chicago served as an incubator for many of these neoliberal education reforms um, that Barb Madalonia calls the uh, predatory education reform, which is a term that I love and want to use more often, that we've seen those across the country. Um, Arnie Duncan, the current Secretary of Education, and all that that implies, came from Chicago yeah. before Rom went back to Chicago. Right. Um, Interesting the, revolving door between Washington and Chicago, Weird, weird. Um, but that these, re- these are reforms that are popular with a lot of Democrats, with Arnie Duncan, with Rahm Emanuel, with our buddy Andrew Cuomo here in New York, who was headlining a pro-charter schools rally. Why do Democrats love neoliberal education reform so much, and why is it so important that the CTU was and is willing to break with Democrats? Well, I think we should clarify that uh, the CTU is not uh, totally and forever uh, broken up with the Democratic Party. Um, such a thing would probably be impossible for um, for maybe for any union, but certainly for a union like the CTU when something like their pensions totally depends on, on what the Democratic legislature is willing to do. Um and so if they don't engage with these Democrats on something like pensions, well, their teachers might, uh, the retirees and their current teachers might find out that they don't have pensions in a few years, right? Um, the CTU is unique in that they've been willing to take on the right wing of the Democratic Party in a way that the rest of the labor movement has really not uh, been willing to do over much of its history in the 21st and 20th century. Um, they have taken on someone like Rahm, one of the central power players within the Democratic Party, um, who is pushing these kind of uh, free market reforms and is making them the the norm for the rest of the party. Uh, And I think a lot of union leaders, whether teachers unions or elsewhere, um, see that and acknowledge it, but it's almost like they they can't help themselves. They, They can't imagine any other kind of interaction with Democrats besides uh, just giving them lots of money and continuing to be loyal foot soldiers Stockholm for them. Syndrome. Yeah, so in some ways what the CTU has done is sort of common sense. I mean, it's the kind of thing that folks on the left have called for 
for a long time, which is uh, to you know just to be combative and be confrontational with these people who have clearly indicated that they have no desire to be their friends. Um, they are their enemies. They are pushing these kind of policies uh, that are directly harmful to them and, and to their students. Um, and as I said, this is something that folks on the left have been calling for for a long time. You know, I interviewed uh, the CTU's vice president, Jesse Sharkey, about this, and I, I assumed that this might have been something that was a tough sell uh, for the leadership to make to their rank and file members, but he uh, to take on these kind of Democrats. But what he said was that actually, no, this is uh, you know at the rank and file level, me- their members are livid with the Democratic Party for these policies that they've been pushing, uh, you know, school closures and turnarounds and charter schools and all of this stuff. Uh, and so they were actually just willing to do what their membership had been thinking for the longest time. And I think other unions who fear taking that kind of action might find uh, similar things amongst their membership. So unless other unions are willing to do that and to enter into combat with people who are clearly trying to destroy them, uh, I can't imagine that the policies uh, within the Democratic Party on anything related to labor are ever going to change unless unions are willing to take action like the CTU has done uh, and to really push back against them. So, of course, the the downer here is that after the CTU won their contract and went back to work, they had to immediately turn around and fight this epic battle over school closings, one that was lost in many places, that a whole bunch of schools were still closed. Um, and then a whole bunch of layoffs came, too. And then the news that they were going to hire a bunch of no, young, nice, probably white kids from Teach for America instead. Um, so it's obviously possible to do great community organizing to have a ton of support from the community and from the membership and still lose, to right? To do all the right things. Right, and to still lose. Um, so what are the lessons from that, right? What, I guess, what next is the real question? And yeah, how do we go forward from that? I think those lessons are still being parsed, but um, there's some interesting things there. I mean, you know, this school closure fight happened only just a few months after the strike happened and a total of 50 schools were closed, uh, which is a crushing defeat. I mean, that's a huge percentage, almost 10% of all the schools within the Chicago Public School District. Um, But the union took a really strong stance against these closures, was not willing to negotiate and, and, you know, beg for a couple schools to be taken off of that list. They took a very principled stance and demanded that there not be any school closures. They led a three-day march um, to every single one of the schools that was on the closure list. Um, And they lost that battle, obviously, but in the wake of that fight, uh, because it was such an unpopular fight, I mean, poll after poll showed that... uh, the Chicagoans were opposed to this action to closing all of these schools, especially in neighborhoods of color, which is where all of these closures happened. Um, so in, in the wake of that, uh, the schools end up closing, but in the wake of it, uh, there's an interesting sort of political space that's opened up on the city council um, where uh, there's a new kind of progressive voting block there that hasn't previously existed in recent memory. The city council in Chicago is often a kind of rubber stamp body for whatever the mayor wants. And so 50 to zero votes are 
uh, in favor of uh, whatever bill there the, is up uh, is a very common thing. And now we're starting to see uh, blocks of 10 or 11 aldermen starting to vote against what uh, the mayor wants to see happen. So um, even in the wake of the defeat, because the CTU has uh, made such a principled stance on these issues, they've uh, they seem to have started. They seem to have um, created a kind of voting block of people who are willing to finally, for the first time in years, take principled stances against the mayor. Um, now, obviously, thirty-nine to eleven versus fifty to zero is. I mean, you're still losing very lopsided amounts. You're not going to, um, you know, be able to wrest many concessions uh, from anybody based on uh, losing 39 to 11. Um, but there's this political space that's seeming to open up. And the union is going to be focusing on city council races as well as state representative races um, in the next year. And so the hope, I think, is to help open up mo- some more of that space. Um, because, w- frankly, without uh, without a strong block on the city council that's willing to take on the mayor, they're going to keep losing on these things like school closures. I mean, Chicago, like New York, has a school board that's elected entirely by the mayor. uh, There's no kind of democratic accountability measures. Um, And so as long as that's true, uh, the school board will continue uh, to just do whatever the mayor's bidding is, like shutting down schools, um, and there's nothing they can do about it. So there are some interesting possibilities that seem to be opening up, even in the wake of those kind of defeats. Again, that's not to minimize the fact that those were very crushing defeats, 50 school closures and $162 million worth of, of classroom-level budget cuts and, and thousands of layoffs are, are really crushing defeats. Um, but I think the CTU's principled stance uh, on those things has helped create a little bit of a political opening that, that could grow in the future. And as you said, the 2012 strike was only two years ago, right. so there's still there's still time yet to see how this will play out. So, um, having tracked this rank and file movement from from its inception up until um, the current political situation, as a reporter, can you talk about some of the things that surprised you um, either in the interviews that you did with educators and community members or uh, perhaps just you know looking at the um, arc of the rank and file movement over time um, did were any of your expectations broken exceeded or um, did you have to sort of change the way you thought about organizing and, and unions I'd say two things about that one was the sort of sense of the uh, real upsurge uh, throughout the city that happened during the strike. I mean, the entire city, you couldn't go more than half or three-quarters of a mile without seeing a new group of teachers who were out on strike in huge numbers, right, no matter where you were in the city. Uh, And if you stayed on the picket lines long enough, uh, you would hear and see all kinds of people driving by, sort of giving them a thumbs up, honking for them. Um, you know, if you were wearing a red CTU shirt on the street, people would just yell out to you. I write in the book about getting like, free cups of yogurt at downtown cafes because I was wearing a CTU shirt, uh, getting on buses for free uh, because, you know, drivers uh, said they wanted to express solidarity with the CTU. I mean, every, anyone who walked around uh, during the time, would, would, I think, was blown away by how much the general population of Chicago um, really backed the teachers in the strike, which, again, goes against that kind of common sense, uh, the supposed common sense about um, people's feelings about uh, supposedly uh, underworked and overpaid uh, public sector employees. Um, so 
I mean, it was just a surprise to see that, like, yes, you actually can take this kind of action, and yes, you actually can get the entire community and the entire city behind you. It actually does work. It's not just something that leftists have said for a long time. Like, it actually can can work. <laughs> um, the other surprising thing to see was, uh, I think, crystallized in the extra two days that the strike went on. Um, I think a lot of people in Chicago had assumed that after the first five days of the strike uh, that it would be called off. Uh, they'd actually, the union had received a proposal that was fairly favorable. Uh, I think they received uh, much more than they thought they would in the in the um, negotiation, the proposal that came out of negotiations, although they still lost a lot in it. Um, but the union membership actually decided, because the proposal came at the 11th hour on a Sunday night, um, and they decided that they hadn't had sufficient time to really examine the contract and see what was in it, um, and they were going to be the ones who would sign off on it, not just um, some leader who was assuring them that, no, this is, this is a good contract. So um, it was incredible to see and to hear about these two extra days on the picket line that these teachers spent going through line by line uh, the contract that was going to be governing their working lives for the next uh, several years. Um, and having really vigorous democratic debate everywhere all over the city, um, it, it showed the kind of sea change that had happened within the union. It wasn't just a few uh, people who were in the leadership and then a couple activist teachers who were uh, leading this fight. It was clear that it was like close to all 26,000 members of the Chicago Teachers Union um, who were uh, really engaged and took the democratic process within the union very seriously. Um, so that was incredible to see, and I think um, that story is something that should hearten a lot of uh, unionists who uh, maybe have lost faith in the capacity of average rank-and-file people to govern their union and to, um, you know, make decisions about their union. Like, if, if the development uh, of those uh, le- those members of the union is taken very seriously, um, they will rise to the occasion. And that was Micah Utrecht. He is the author of Strike for America. Now we get to our favorite part of the show. It's ARG. I wish I'd written that, where we go over our picks for this week, um, the things that we wish we had written but did not. So we will refer you to them here. Um, I'd like to turn everyone's attention to uh, an important and timely article, um, an essay rather, um, written by uh, Rebecca Winson in the New Statesman. It's an English political publi- publication. She talks about International Women's Day, and she reminds people that we mustn't forget the revolutionary roots of International Women's Day. So um, this past week, you might have noticed that the media was full of uh, discussions of corporate work-life balance and finding sensible shoes and banning bossy and leaning in. Um, and so amid the fog of you know neoliberal capitalist feminism, you might dig a little deeper and unearth a history of International Women's Day. Now it has been rebranded as something that's pretty corporate and commercial, but it started out as sort of a, a feminist extension of the international socialist movement. And Louise Zaitz and, and Clara Zetkin were garment factory activists, and they were inspired to stage a massive strike back in 1910. And they basically launched a campaign on their own within the socialist movement to promote women's rights. And they led um, a massive strike, and they 
came forward with a campaign called the Uprising of the 20,000. And the strike that ensued afterwards in New York's garment sector was led by Clara Lemlich, and she was a young Ukrainian Jewish immigrant who ended up rallying thousands of women workers to the picket lines and actually pushed forward a lot of the very early labor legislation that became, you know, eventually our 40-hour week, um, you know, secured benefits, a minimum wage, all those sorts of things. Those came out of organizing campaigns that were led by mass mobilizations of women. So, you know, it went through its ups and downs. In 1917, the International Women's Day took on even revolutionary significance when Russian women marched in St. Petersburg and they called for bread and peace. Remember that? But no, no, uh, this week was all about banning bossy. So basically what Rebecca Winson's uh, exhortation to all of us is that we should try to avoid the co-optation of feminism by corporate culture um, instead of looking to empower women by giving them all the tools necessary to be, you know, just as um, evil and corporate and exploitative as their male bosses. uh, What we really need to be doing is thinking about new ways of organizing work, thinking about what women uh, bring to a workplace and why gender equality matters. We want to strive for a more just, more fair society for everyone. Um, and she's, she talks about, um, she ends her essay basically saying, sweatshops still exist across the world as do trafficking, slavery, horrendous working conditions, and unsanitary living conditions. On our own doorstep, women are bearing the brunt of the cuts, single mothers, poor teenagers in inner cities, ordinary working women who struggle to put food on the table. And what do we debate on Twitter, on our much-fought-over platforms in the press? Pink toys, boobs and newspapers, and women on banknotes, none of which is unimportant, but which have all risen to the top of the debate because of our reluctance to deal with anything filthier. International... Women's Day and perhaps feminism in general now veers dangerously close to paint by numbers protest. So if you want to think outside the box, you really need to think outside of, you know, what International Women's Day has become and look back to history to think about how it started and where it can go. And of course, in this country, it's pretty much non-existent. No, right? I mean, thinking that International Women's Day is a has been taken over by corporations would require that we be in a place that actually even acknowledges that it exists. Right, right. Um, I mean, we're, when we're talking about a, a British publication, I guess their take on it is a little different to me. I'm like, really? It's been co-opted? I didn't hear anything other than... Right. The- if only we had that problem. <laughs> right, right. So it should be noted that International Women's Day is far more international than it is a U.S. Uh, phenomenon. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, hopefully if it ever gets to these shores, we'll have a better take on it. Yeah. Well, far be it from me to ever be the one who switches topics from feminism to what about men, but the piece that I went arg over this week was actually sort of a piece that does just that. Um, Susie Kim at MSNBC writes a piece called How the Safety Net Leaves Out Poor Unmarried Men. Joe Jones, the president of CEO uh, president and CEO of the Center for Urban Families in Baltimore, says in this article, we've always thought about men being able to pull themselves up by bootstraps who've never needed support. Women and children are considered to be more vulnerable. Now, I would never say that this means that women have it better in any way. Um, many times women are still much more likely to be the sole caregiver for a child or an elderly relative. But it is worth noting that this kind of ideology is not actually helpful when we consider women the victims and men the ones capable of pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. 
Um, women are the deserving poor, of course. Well, some women are the deserving. White women are the deserving <laughs> poor. But right, it, it is an interesting question, right? Because um, the young men who are most likely to be poor are also most likely to not be white. They are most likely to have been become poor because they were targeted by the criminal justice system, because they have a prison term in their past. And so it is that much harder for them to do any of that bootstrapping we like to talk so much about. So um, Susie Kim looks at the earned income tax credit a proposal to expand that to childless people, whether they be women or men, and other programs like the Medicaid expansion that might help those people have better access to health care, which in turn then makes them, again, a little bit more employable. There's a, a story in here about men who couldn't get jobs because they didn't have front teeth because they had not been able to get care for their teeth. I mostly was struck by this piece because it does a little bit, it turns a few of the myths of poverty on their head, and it challenges us to really think about a safety net that would work for everyone that isn't just designed for certain people that, as Michelle just said, are conceived of as the deserving poor. Right. And I think it's also important to note that, you know, a lot of these welfare programs began, you know, for the infirm, right, for the elderly. That's how we got Social Security, right? right? That's why we have universal. Yes, that's how we have universal for people above a certain age. And, and, you know, going back to the teeth thing, Medicaid is one thing that does not serve single men really at all, poor single men. So um, ultimately, this is bad, you know, for both genders because it enforces this divide, first of all, between what is expected of women, what women are capable of doing when they're poor. It ignores the fact that other poor people have very real needs that are similar to those of poor women, right? Right. And, I mean, it's, when you look at it on a broad scale, right, it's, at bottom, an argument for universal social services. Yeah, I hate that term, the safety net, too. I mean, it's time to start interrogating this idea that the safety net is only to be, um, you know, invoked when it's supposed to catch you when you're on your last limbs. Yeah. Yeah, I I think the idea of a universal floor, a, a... single-payer health care system, perhaps. Perhaps something like a universal basic income. Um, Things like that would create a system that, instead of creating a a safety net that has big holes, as we're noting, that many people can fall through, that creates a floor that you will never fall lower than this. Um, But you know, we, we we think big here at Belabored, so thank you you for joining us while we put our our big dreams out there. Thank you once again for joining us for episode 45 of Belabored. As always, you can tweet at us at hashtag Belabored. You can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. You can leave us a message on Facebook. You can probably not track us down in the street. We would probably not like that. Over and out. This life is hard, so hard I must go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast, produced by Natasha Lewis. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.